1: The emergence of type 2 diabetes in children and adolescents over the past 20 years suggests a relationship between insulin sensitivity and gonadal function. What is the association between insulin sensitivity and puberty? Joining us to discuss type 2 diabetes in children and adolescents is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Colorado in Denver, Colorado, Dr. Philip Zeitler. Dr. Zeitler, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks for having me on the show. Type 2 diabetes can be found in any subset Uh, of children, adolescent population. Why such the big increase?
2: Well, it's an interesting question, actually, and we don't know the exact answer, but we do know that it has correlated with uh, rising rates of childhood obesity uh, that have occurred in the United States and other developed and developing countries um, over the last few decades. We saw rising rates of obesity in the 80s and 90s, and then in the mid-90s, this um, was... um, accompanied by uh, rather remarkable increases in the rate of presentation of of diabetes in those populations. And the same thing has been seen in in multiple countries. So presumably this is related to uh, all those factors that are contributing to rising rates of obesity in the childhood population.
1: What about uh, genetics? Uh, do kids in these ethnic groups like African Americans and Native Americans have higher rates just like we see in the adult population?
2: Uh, absolutely. The highest rates are among the uh, Native Americans, um, uh, followed closely by both Hispanic and African Americans um, with substantially lower rates among um, non-Hispanic white Populations, and so there's the very similar genetics. However, you have to say that the genetics haven't changed in the last. 50 years, presumably, so something uh, environmental change that brought out the risk uh, in, these, in these younger children.
1: Yeah, and, and obesity. Well, let's talk about weight circumference because this is something that many of our listeners who are out there in the trenches seeing patients might be able to use in evaluating. How, do, how does that relate to the risk of developing diabetes in
2: kids? Well, just as in adults, we know that there's a strong relationship between visceral fat uh, and uh, both insulin resistance and risk for diabetes, Uh, And in the clinical setting, waist circumference is the most accessible measure of visceral fat. So we see the same thing in children that um, you see in adult patients, that those patients with the abdominal obesity are the ones that appear to be at highest risk. The the one difficulty that we have is that we do not really have good waist circumference normal values for uh, all populations at risk. We have some values for uh, white uh, adolescents but not for other ethnic groups. So in the clinic, it's useful in a... Um, in a general sense that those children with high waist circumference are at higher risk than those without it, but we don't have good cutoff values that say, for example, you do for adults.
1: So do you routinely measure in all your kids and adolescents and tell us how to measure it correctly?
2: In general, um, Outside of the research setting, uh, we do not routinely measure waist circumference in the clinic because it's embarrassing uh, and somewhat difficult to do uh, for the patient. It's extremely useful in the research setting when you have highly trained uh, folks. However, having said that, uh, most of the time um, you don't need a perfectly accurate uh, waist circumference um, to recognize that a patient has abdominal obesity.
1: In the introduction, I mentioned insulin sensitivity and gonadal function and the relationship with puberty. Let's talk about
2: that. So this is a very interesting observation. Um, what, what was noted really beginning in the 90s when we first started recognizing type 2 in these kids Uh, Is that this does not really present at a random time. The type 2 diabetes, the average age of presentation of type 2 diabetes in adolescents is between 13 and 14, with girls presenting about a year younger. Um, And that's not a random age. That's really uh, the average age of 10 or uh, 3 to 4 puberty uh, in these children. There's a strong relationship between presentation of diabetes and entry into the latter half of the middle uh, of puberty. The relationship relates to the fact that puberty is itself, even in otherwise normal children, lean children, an insulin-resistant state. So the presumption is that you have a Children at risk because of their obesity, who are compensated and un, uh, that are able to keep up with their since that their resistance through an increase in their beta cell function. And then they enter into this period of uh, increased insulin resistance in the later part of puberty, and they presumably are no longer able to compensate beta cell functions no longer balanced with their insulin requirement, and they present with overt diabetes. And what's very interesting about this, that you tend not to get presentation of type 2 diabetes in later adolescence, except in a smaller number of patients, and so it appears that in kids at risk, they will present in later puberty, and then if they don't present with their diabetes, they may, in fact, continue on in a more compensated state uh, until a more typical uh, age of presentation in in either young or mid-adulthood. In adults, you're probably aware that there's known to be a strong relationship between sex steroids, for example, and and insulin sensitivity. Um, And we've recently published uh, data showing a strong relationship between testosterone production uh, and insulin uh, sensitivity in boys as they go through puberty.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Dr. Philip Zeitler. We are discussing the increase in type 2 diabetes in children and adolescents. Well, Philip, tell us about uh, your metabolic syndrome clinic. Um, Never heard of a metabolic syndrome clinic for young folks.
2: This is something we started now in 2004. Uh, I'm sure most of your listeners recognize that in a general endocrine uh, setting, uh, patients with obesity uh, can be difficult to, to manage in a routine uh, office appointment because of the need for ancillary services. A patient comes in and you can identify their hypertension or their their lipid problems, but they need a dietitian. They need some support with uh, behavior change that's going to be required. So in an effort to provide better care for these patients, we established um, a multidisciplinary uh, clinic um, for uh, these kids. In order to get into our clinic, they basically have to uh, have their records reviewed and have the presence of um, uh, one or more obesity-related comorbidities. Uh, When they come to the clinic, they're seen by uh, a a dietitian experienced in working with this population as well as an exercise physiologist and a um, psychologist uh, interested in uh, aspects of behavior change uh, in the population.
1: Let's talk a little bit about children of low socioeconomic status. I mean, we talked about certain ethnic groups. Are those two groups the same or, or not necessarily?
2: As you know, it's difficult to piece apart uh, those relationships. It is true that the type 2 population is both ethnically diverse as well as uh, predominantly low socioeconomic status. The largest cohort that we know about is the Today Cohort, which was an um, NIDDK-supported study that's taking place at 15 centers and enrolling kids with type 2 diabetes. And that's ongoing, but we know from entry uh, data on these patients that the uh, mean family uh, income is quite low and in fact, uh, 40% of our population have a family income of less than $25,000 and only around 10% have an income of greater than $50,000. So this is a, uh, quite a low uh, socioeconomic status, uh, population that's actually presenting with type 2 diabetes and a very high rate of single-parent households. What type of interventions
1: and treatment options are for these young people with type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes or insulin-resistant syndrome?
2: In many ways, that type 2 diabetes is the more straightforward, you know we treat them just like um, uh, adults with type 2 diabetes are treated in general their um, their lifestyle disorders are worse than you see in the run of the mill adult with type 2 diabetes as you would expect because these are fifteen year olds they don 't have all the other Uh, medical problems that would lead them to to develop type 2 at the age of 60 or 70 or 50 years of age. So these kids in general have very severe lifestyle disorders. So we treat them with medications and insulin um, and diabetes education as well as efforts to address their uh, lifestyle disorders. This is a very difficult and labor-intensive thing to do because these are often highly entrenched uh, behaviors uh, in the families. And the... uh, up to 90% of these kids have other family members with diabetes, so the whole family is struggling with these sort of lifestyle changes. It's somewhat more difficult to know how to treat the kids with prediabetes and metabolic syndrome. We don't have guidelines. Uh, The focus has to be... Almost exclusively on lifestyle change, which is the, the most difficult thing to to affect.
1: Do you ever use uh, GLP one agonists like Byetta or Victoza
2: or uh,
1: pramatide in these groups?
2: There are clinical trials underway uh, for uh, Victoza and Byetta. Um, I have used um, Byetta Exenatide uh, intermittently in my patients in certain circumstances, but don't have enough personal experience to. Uh, to say how effective uh, they are, but in but in many ways the physiology of these uh, in these children is the same as it is in adults, and you'd expect similar responses, except for the very entrenched lifestyle problems that we see.
1: What about the other uh, challenges that we see in metabolic syndrome, dyslipidemia, hypertension, cardiovascular risk? As you mentioned, these kids are younger and they don't really have these things in overt overt fashion. But I, I bet you have to pay attention to those.
2: Well, in fact, they do have them in an overt fashion. Um, the um, uh, among the type two, kids with type two diabetes, uh, as many as forty percent of them will have hypertension. Um, wow. Something less than that will have dyslipidemia. the biggest problem we have is that we don't have good guidelines for pharmacologic intervention, and um, uh, we're probably never going to have reliable guidelines because we don't have the large uh, cohorts with having heart disease that allow us to to figure out what uh, levels of LDL or hypertension are risk factors for development of of heart disease and therefore we are to some extent uh, in a situation of having to extrapolate from adult data and may or may not ever be able to develop truly hard evidence-based guidelines for intervention in these kids
1: people have to realize kids are not little adults, uh, and uh, I've heard many pediatricians say that, but certainly paying attention to the other dyslipidemia and hypertension and cardiovascular risk factors is so important. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Colorado in Denver, Colorado, Dr. Philip Zeitler. Dr. Zeitler, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes
2: Discourse.
0: It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash D-I-A. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com.
3: Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes, and like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. <laughs> yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com DIA.